0: Good morning, for those of you who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, I'm John Moon. I serve as an elder here at Central Presbyterian, and at Central we believe that we can be more meaningfully engaged in the world when we have a better understanding of a deeper appreciation for the unique features of our own cultural moment. And the Central Lecture Series is our contribution to the ongoing dialogue at the intersection of faith and the modern world, modern culture. And I'm pleased this morning to be able to introduce John Lennox, whom many have compared to CS Lewis, and that is high praise, certainly at Central Presbyterian. So we're excited to have him, <laughs> uh, and without further ado, allow me to introduce Professor Lennox. John Lennox is Professor of Mathematics Emeritus at the University of Oxford. He lectures on faith and science for the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. He is particularly interested in the interface of science, philosophy, and theology. Lennox has been part of numerous public debates, debates defending the Christian faith, including Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Peter Singer. The Doubting Trinity, as they're sometimes (laughs) referred to. John (laughs) is the author of a number of books on the relationship between science, religion, and ethics. He and his wife, Sally, live near Oxford, England. This morning, Professor Lennox's timely talk is entitled, Can Science Explain Christmas? Friends, please welcome John
1: Lennox. Thank you very much for this warm welcome. I've had so many surprises this morning, meeting people that I haven't seen for a very long time especially the wife of the first pastor to greet me when many years ago I went to Ukraine. But that's a story I'm not going to talk about this morning. Thank you so much for inviting me. Your mention of Richard Dawkins reminds me that the last time I was in New York, I was invited by Charlie Rose. You may have heard of Charlie Rose to debate Dawkins. But I did debate him it was never shown, for reasons that I won't explain. (laughs) Can science explain Christmas? Well, it's a very magic time, Christmas, for children, for adults, parents, and so on. And as we drove through New York last night, you see the lights and the trees around the world, the Christmas markets, the illumination of homes, And there's something in us, I suppose, especially when we're young, that loves a bit of fantasy, especially if it brings obvious benefit, as many a child has discovered in connection with Santa Claus or Father Christmas and kept its suspicions about the identity of the figure in red and white, even though it seemed vaguely familiar because it brought with it rewards if they kept quiet as to the identity. For many people, Christmas is a fun time for family and friends and neighbors giving and receiving prayers. But for many more, there are carol services with lights and candles and readings from the Bible that remind us that there's a deeper dimension by far to be considered. Perhaps more in Europe than here in the US, the God dimension is fading very rapidly and is regarded as just as irrelevant and legendary as Father Christmas. A magical and fun feeling may be, but no reality. And educated people who are scientifically literate simply cannot believe all this miraculous stuff about angels coming from heaven and a virgin conceiving the saviour of the world. It isn't reasonable, they say. Surely the stories of supernatural events surrounding the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are pre-scientific myths, just fairy stories. And so science explains Christmas for many people by completely removing the supernatural dimension and reducing it to fantasy. Now, let's think a bit about this, because I face this kind of thing many times. Let me tell you about a debate in the Netherlands some time ago where a physicist opposing me stood up and he says, your faith in God is just like people's faith in Christmas, in Santa Claus. What do you call it here? Santa Claus. Claus. So I thought this is going to be very interesting. So the huge audience, a couple of thousand people, I said to them, Please put up your hand if you came to believe in Santa Claus as an adult. Not a single hand went up. Not a single hand went up. Then I said, please put up your hand if you came to believe in Christ as an adult. And hundreds of hands went up. I turned to the physicist and I said, pardon me, but you're insulting our intelligence the finest minds in history and currently have engaged with the life-death of Jesus Christ and the implications of Christianity historically and so on. They haven't done the same with Santa Claus because the difference is that Santa Claus doesn't exist, but Jesus did. And it's very tragic that. The late physicist Stephen Hawking once said that religion was a fairy story for people afraid of the dark, and this appeared as a slogan in the Times, I think. And they very kindly came to me and asked me for a response. And I said, that's easy if you want a response like that. I said, atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. (laughs) Well, you shouldn't really laugh because That's a Freudian kind of concept. That God is an illusion, a fantasy, and Dawkins then put it in his book, the God delusion. But what many people do not realize is that you can't quite stop there. I meet many people that say, look, science, particularly psychology and Freud, have removed the supernatural out of Christmas, and that's it. But I say, look, if you read psychiatrists carefully, and I do, when Dawkins writes a book called The God Delusion, delusion is a psychiatric category, and I was very careful, since I'm not a psychiatrist and neither is he, to look up what psychiatrists really think, and I discovered that the president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the United Kingdom thought that Dawkins was completely wrong. He's well worth reading on the subject. But there's a German psychiatrist, Manfred Lutz, who's written a wonderful book called Eine kleine Geschichte des Christ, and A Brief History of the Great right One, that is God. And he makes a very important point. He says Look, if there is no God, the Freudian explanation of religion is brilliant. As wish fulfillment, as wanting a father figure in the sky who can support you, that works. if no God. But of course, if there is a God, the very same argument shows you that atheism is a wish fulfillment. The desire never to have to meet God or to give account for the mess we've made of our lives or the lives of other people. And he makes his bottom line point, which is very sharp and very important. As to whether there is a God or not, Freud can't help you at all. So the people that go with Dawkins, are rejecting God much too rapidly because they don't realize that he's never answered the question, is there a God or not? And that is the most important question. We need to look beyond Freud, we need to look for evidence. And I sit here because I firmly believe that the Christian faith, like any respectable faith, is evidence-based. When you say, I believe X, you have the right to say to me, on what grounds? What is the basis of your faith in X? And it's so important to ask that question, because I'm afraid Dawkins, Hitchens, and the rest of them have got the world thinking that faith is a religious word that means believing where there's no evidence. That is not true. And part of that evidence is the legacy of Christianity. I mean, you think today they're singing carols downstairs and they're celebrating an awesome event that has inspired art and music. And for the last 20 centuries, the good news about Jesus Christ has transformed countless lives and deeply influenced our culture. It has left a legacy of hospitals, hospices, Universities such as Harvard, with its motto Veritas, the truth, Oxford, with its motto Domino Illuminatio Mea, God is my light, it's left civil, political, and legal institutions, and perhaps most important of all, the highest valuation of human beings that there is in existence, as special, as supremely valuable because they're made in the image of a creator god that lies at the basis of all true morality and that's even admitted by scholars such as Jürgen Habernas and the continent who's an atheist he says don't throw away the Judeo-Christian legacy why because it is the source of meaning for millions of people and and he adds this now this is an atheist speaking one of the continent's leading intellectuals, he says, we have no other source. Everything else is idle, postmodern chatter. Now, of course, not all religions are the same. And it's up to each one to defend itself. And I'm going to speak to you as a Christian. And the first thing to say about the Christian message is that it is no legend. It is rooted in history, and that is one of the reasons it is powerful. And that historicity is asserted very clearly by Luke. And at this point, I realize I've left my Bible in my case. So if my case is right here, I can get the most important document that I've ever come across, It is amazing to me how many people write off Christianity as a legend. When you read Luke, and we're just going to read a little bit of it, because Luke is a fascinating person for two quite distinct reasons. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he writes, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, many people have not noticed that. Theophilus already was someone who knew all about Christianity. The reason that Luke wrote his two-volume work, Luke and Acts, is not simply to inform him. It's more than that. That you might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And if there's anything that the church in the 21st century needs... More than anything else, it's certainty. People are losing their confidence all round the place in the authority of Scripture and in the truths of the Christian faith. So Luke is writing to bring certainty. He's followed, he's spoken to eyewitnesses. He's very carefully followed the course of things and now he plunges straight in to a description that is meant to be understood as history. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zachariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Notice the factuality starting with the global political scene, Herod, and coming down to this particular priest. A bit later on, when he comes near to the birth of Jesus, he says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That is a fact of history. This was the first registration when Carineus was governor. And a bit later, he goes through the various people who were ruling at the time. Luke was a brilliant historian. And this has been confirmed in a massively impressive work by Colin Hemer that Luke understands geography. He mentions dozens of towns. He gets them all right. He knows about the various islands. He knows the proper names for the particular officials in various cities and so on. And the famous Roman historian, Sherwin White at Oxford says, for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. And yet, and yet, and yet, there are many people that say, I don't really believe that Jesus existed. Now that comes from Bertrand Russell, who wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Christian. And I remember in my early days at Cambridge, I saw this book advertised in a bookshop window, Why I'm Not a Christian. I thought, dare I read it? (laughs) And I walked up and down past the window and then I thought, how stupid. If you can't answer Russell, you don't deserve to call yourself a Christian. So I went in and bought it and it was such an encouragement to me. (laughs) Because it seemed to me that Russell had never really engaged intellectually with Christianity at all. It was just amazing. So sometimes you get confirmation from the most unexpected places. Now, this is important for us today because people in my country, again, more than yours, but it's coming here, are very suspicious of everything. Jesus, who was he? Did he really exist? Now, you can answer those questions with authority Because the people you need to go to for answers to that question are not the theologians. It's the ancient historians. And I found it absolutely fascinating, and I've written about this in my book Gunning for God and also in my recent book Can Science Explain Everything? The ancient historians, virtually to a man or woman in this world, the top people, agree not only that Jesus existed but that many of the things, now many of these people are atheists and agnostics, but they accept the documentary evidence much more than some people do who call themselves Christian believers. It's astonishing the authority here. He listen to this one. Here's a skeptical expert from Cambridge, sorry. Um, he's the author of the Cambridge University Text of the Historical Jesus, but he's actually at Oxford, so I mustn't uh, get that wrong. He says, all this renders highly implausible any far-fetched theories that even Jesus' very existence was a Christian invention. The fact that he existed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, for whatever reason, and that he had a band of followers who continued to support his cause seems to be a part of the bedrock of historical tradition. If nothing else, the non-Christian evidence can provide us with certainty on that score. Now, the Christian story is not only historical, but that historicity threatens the worldview that dominates the Western academy, naturalism. That is the idea that this universe is a closed system of cause and effect. Science leaves no room for miracles or God. And when I was in New York the last time and had this interview with Dawkins, he mocked my belief. He says John Lennox actually believed that Jesus turned water into wine. How absurd. And I said to him, Richard, If Jesus was the word of God who created the universe, turning water into wine was very simple indeed, I suspect. The basic issue is, was he who he claimed to be? And if you watch my first debate with Dawkins in Alabama, which is still on YouTube, he also mocked my assertion towards the end of the debate, and that turned everything, I believe. I said that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. How pathetic. We've been talking about big ideas of philosophy and theology, and now it all comes down to this, the resurrection of Jesus. How pathetic, how petty, how unworthy of the universe. And I thought, what is this? If a man has been bodily raised from the dead, that is the most spectacularly important event that has ever occurred and we need to know about it. But you can watch that for yourselves, it's sad. But what I want to deal with this this morning is that all this dismissal of the supernatural dimension, a lot of it is traceable to David Hume, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher who claimed that, A, the New Testament was written in pre-scientific times when it was easy to believe miracles because people didn't know the laws of nature. Two, miracles are impossible because, again Hume says, nature is absolutely uniform. Of course, asking whether miracles are possible is asking whether nature is absolutely uniform. And Hume's answer effectively amounts to miracles are impossible because they're impossible. And that doesn't really prove anything. Now that we know the laws of nature, miracles are impossible since they would be violations of those laws. And that's an attitude that runs through many of my colleagues and many of the scientific community around the world, including the late Stephen Hawking. So let's test that a little bit, shall we? What about the people who are associated with the best known laws of nature? Isaac Newton and Johannes Kepler. They were famous atheists, weren't they? They certainly were not. They were both believers in God, and Kepler wrote a thing that is beloved by me as a mathematician. He said, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us the language of mathematics. Kepler and Newton were believers in God. And C.S. Lewis made a, a brilliant quotation to show that modern science is part of the legacy of Christianity. Have you got that? Men became scientific, wrote Lewis, because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. I'm not the only contemporary scientist who is a believer. Think of Francis Collins, director of the National Institute of Health, or Bill Phillips, Nobel Prize winner for physics. We all believe in the laws of nature, and we all believe in the supernatural dimension to Christianity. Because we can see that when it comes to explanation, God and science are different kinds of explanation. I find this enormously important. You don't need to be a scientist to grasp this, but it can help you to communicate this fact. Let me give you a simple example. Why is the water boiling? Well, because heat energy from the gas flame is being... Transmitted through the copper kettle base, it's agitating the molecules of water, that's why it's boiling. Well, actually it's boiling because I'd love a cup of tea. <laughs> now you laugh, why do you laugh? Because you see that those are two explanations, but please notice they're different, very different. One is a scientific explanation, the other is a personal explanation, my desire for a cup of tea. They don't compete. They don't conflict, they complement. And they're both necessary to give a complete explanation for my tea. And isn't it interesting? People have been enjoying tea for thousands of years before they knew anything about heat equations and the transfer of heat. The personal explanation is actually, for most purposes, outside the laboratory, the most important one. That's such a simple illustration that I find many professors cannot understand it. You see, let me put it this way, ladies and gentlemen. The God explanation of the universe no more competes with the scientific explanation of how the universe works than Henry Ford competes with the law of internal combustion as an explanation for the motor car. Have you got that? They're different kinds of explanation. And you don't argue away the existence of God or Henry Ford by saying how the car or the universe works. It's as simple as that. But now let's go back to Luke. 20 centuries ago, here's the amazing thing about Luke. He understood the basic objection that contemporary scientists make against miracles. And he says so. You see, Luke was not only a historian. He was a medical doctor, probably trained in the best medical science in Alexandria. So in that sense, he was a kind of scientist. And you know, people had done brilliant things by the time Luke had come along. In 200 BC, for instance, Eratosthenes had calculated the circumference of the Earth. And in 150 BC, Hipparchus had made a reasonable calculation of the distance from the Earth to the Moon. I wonder if you were given a pen and paper, could you do that? We'd be hard pushed. And at the very beginning of his gospel, Luke shows he understands this objection to miracle. Have you noticed Luke tells us two? Stories of miraculous conceptions, not miraculous births, miraculous conceptions. Now, of course, the story of Jesus is central, but it's not the first story he tells us. What he tells us is the story of John the Baptist. Let me read a bit of it. Well, I've read a little bit. The priest Zachariah and his wife, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. What's that telling you? I think we all know that little law of nature, that you get too old to have children. I nearly said thank the Lord for that, but you know, it is a fact. As anybody can tell you, don't have to be an expert in gynaecology. We all know that. They knew it then. These weren't, they were pre-scientific by definition, but they knew the laws of nature. Now watch what happens because of that. Now while he, that is Zachariah, was serving as a priest before God, so he was a priest. He obviously believed in God. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, that is to go in and pray on behalf of the nation. The whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And uh, he says certain things about John, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For, here it comes, I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Isn't this interesting? Zechariah was not an atheist nor even an agnostic. He believed in prayer, he was a theologian, he was a trained priest. He was representing, in fact, this was the big day in his entire life because a priest normally only got this privilege once. So here he's at the high point of his ministry. He's leading the nation's prayer, he believes in God, and when an angel appears, he's troubled, but he still believes in angels enough to talk to the angel. So he believes in God, he believes in prayer, he believes in angels. And the angel says, your prayers have been heard, you're going to have a baby. No, we are not, he says. Why? Because of a law of nature that I know very well. Isn't this interesting? Here it is in the very first chapter of Luke. Luke, the and historian, focusing on the difficulty people have today. You can't believe that stuff. Because of the laws of nature. Watch what happens to Zachariah as a result of that perhaps you know already. And the angel said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. That was pretty blunt stuff. And so Zachariah comes out and goes, He couldn't speak. I'm tempted to preach a sermon because I'm a preacher at heart, ladies and gentlemen. If you do not believe that God can reverse physical nature, you've got no message from the people and you might as well be dumb. That's why so many of our churches are silent and empty because people with training in philosophy and theology who pray publicly and who claim to lead the worship at heart, they do not believe there is a supernatural dimension. And they have no message for the people. And poor old Zachariah had to wait for quite a while until this baby was born. This is a powerful story, and it's a vastly important story. Because the law of nature is real. But you see, the laws of nature do not imprison God. See, we make a mistake because of the word law. And it's very easy. We're staying in a hotel not far from here. So suppose I put $100 in the drawer last night and I put another $100 in my bedside drawer tonight. How much is that? $200. And I wake up the next morning, and I find $50 in the drawer. What do I assume? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken or the laws of New York City? (laughs) The laws of New York City. How do I know that they've been broken? Because the laws of arithmetic haven't been broken. The thief, assuming it wasn't my wife that took the uh, money out, the thief, the laws of arithmetic, the laws of arithmetic don't shout and say, stop, you can't do this. The laws of nature and mathematics tell us what normally happens. The law of gravity tells me if I drop the apple, it'll hit the ground. That doesn't stop you coming and catching it. And God has built regularities into our universe that we can recognise. Now, here is the lovely thing about this: it's really ironical. You've got to know those laws before you can. Born minutes to people years old, you would be. Because he knew the norm to which nature normally operates. That he says there's something special here. But it took him a long time. His wife got there first. (laughs) That wives often do get there first. But I I not say much about that because my wife's sitting at the back. So Hume's point is simply wrong. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully. Nothing can seem extraordinary until you can recognize the ordinary. And exactly the same thing happens when Joseph heard of Mary's pregnancy. But Luke is so careful here. It's very interesting. Zacharias' objection was the law of nature. But that wasn't true with Mary. When the angel Gabriel announced to her she was going to have a child, she said, how shall this be since I know not a man? In other words, her objection was moral. This cannot be. This is impossible. Why? Because she knew exactly where babies normally come from. She saw the difficulty as well. And it's so important that we realize this is Scripture telling us about these things so that we can be certain. So that Hume's Arguments just do not work. Mary's difficulty was moral. You can understand it. I mean, in those days, to have a child out of wedlock would mean public censure, facing jeers and suspicious talk. Even years after Jesus was born, they were shouting at him. We were not born of fornication. You were was the implication of that statement. The answer came from God. This is not a natural process. This is God acting through his spirit. This is utterly holy and utterly moral. That is a very important thing to say, that here is no religious myth. Some years ago, the Times religious correspondent wrote, In the times, if nothing miraculous occurred at the event of Jesus' conception, the implications are enormous. It means that Jesus had a natural father. This was either Joseph or someone else. If it was Joseph, those New Testament references to his thinking his betrothed wife was made pregnant by another man are not just religious myth. They are deliberate lies, either by Joseph himself or someone else who made them up. If the natural father was not Joseph, but another man, then Mary's story was a lie. Joseph was deceived or an accomplice in the lie, and the gospel writers were taken in. The question is, how do liberal theologians who take this view avoid casting aspersions at the integrity and chastity of Joseph and Mary? We're celebrating something utterly unique. God becoming human, can science explain Christmas? Well, let me come to this huge point. The claim is in these carols we sing that God became man and I was giving a lecture to five hundred physicists at our atomic research station, first time anybody'd managed to get in to talk to them about things like this and When I'd finished, a very bright professor of physics from Oxford came up to me and said, well, that was a very interesting talk, Professor Lennox. But I perceive you are a Christian. He was quite sharp, this chap. And um, (laughs) (coughs) he uh, he said, I'm a bit astonished. I said, why? Well, he said, don't look. He said, you are obliged to believe that Jesus was both God and man. Now, he said, this is the 21st century. I mean, look, honestly, can you explain that to me? Can science explain Christmas? Oh, I said, sure. But you've asked a big question. Let me ask you a simpler question. Oh, he said, that's fine. I said, tell me, what is consciousness? And he paused for a while, looked at me, and looked at the floor. And then he said, I don't know. He said, that's very honest of you. Nobody knows. So let me try an easier question. What is energy? Oh, he said we can use it and we can measure it. I said, that's not my question. What is it? He hesitated longer this time and said, I don't know. Well, I said, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what Richard Feynman, one of the brightest Nobel Prize winners in physics, of the last century, said, you don't know. I said, let's pursue this. This is most interesting. You don't know what energy is. You don't know what consciousness is. Do you believe in them, energy and consciousness? He said, sure. And you don't know what they are. I said, should I write you off as a physicist? He said, please don't. I said, but you were going to write me off because I couldn't explain to you, in terms that you would understand, something that's infinitely more complex, how God can become human. But I said, let me go further. Of course I can't explain to it to you. The fundamental things we don't understand even yet, and energy is much simpler than the nature of God become human in Jesus Christ but I want to tell you that just as you believe in two things that you cannot explain I said why do you believe in consciousness and energy if you don't know what they are well that was too difficult for him but I'm a kind Irishman I said because somehow these concepts resonate and mean something to you and they've some kind of explanatory power he said that's right exactly I said And the only thing that makes sense to me of the nature of Jesus Christ is that he is both God and man. That is the only thing that makes sense of what I read in scripture and experience in my life. He said, we need to talk. I said, we do, and we shall. And we did, but that's another story. But I tell you that story Because it's important to realize that in one sense, we have no scientific explanation of simple things. You know, I used to think the law of gravity explained gravity, it doesn't. It tells us how to calculate the attraction between massive bodies, for example, and land people on the moon, but it doesn't (laughs) tell us what gravity is. And the same thing is true at this higher level. We have evidence, I believe, that enables us to trust the word of God. But my final point is this. Can science explain Christmas? If you think of science as rational explanation, science is not coextensive with rationality. Rationality is much broader. Of course there's a rational explanation of Christmas perfectly reasonable. And it is, ladies and gentlemen, that God became human in Jesus Christ and left evidence, not only in history, but in the experience of every man and woman who's come to trust him. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Have we time for a couple of questions? I'll write them down, hands up and a question please and make it brief.
0: Oh, I all right.
1: as both metaphor and explanation, and quantum
0: mechanics allows us to think those things as existing in two places.
1: Okay, I think I've got that. We have a second one. Who's got a second question?
0: Perhaps one on my side. you're a mathematician, there is nothing more abstract, more pure than something. Some would even say beautiful than math.
1: Oh, you're dead right. Yes. <laughs>
0: Yes. Yes. It a God. yes. You so comment.
1: what's the question?
0: You know, if you could comment on that, you know, the intersection between and, and the divine laws.
1: Okay, three and then we'll stop. Yes, at the back. Sorry, I can't hear you. How close are we to getting a quantitative answer to divine action? Okay, how many hours have we got now? <laughs> okay, the first question. I'm greater things than these you shall do. I believe that refers to greater in extent but not greater in content in the sense that, uh, for example, Billy Graham preached to perhaps a quarter of a million or half a million people in Central Park up the road there. Jesus never did that. And the disciples through the ages have done many things that are greater in extent. But we've got to remember that the reason that they could do that was it was Jesus working in them In other words, he was doing it anyway. Now, your comment on the defeat of the English, as an Irishman, I would be very reluctant to say anything about it whatsoever and be even even more reluctant to say whether it fitted in the category of the miraculous or what. So, you mentioned quantum mechanics and all this kind of stuff. This is a very difficult field as to what quantum mechanics tells us in terms of philosophy and working out miracles. Some people, like my teacher of quantum mechanics, Sir John Polkinghorne, argue that quantum mechanics is one of those areas where we can see space for genuine freedom, and it may be so at that different level, but as to exactly what is involved and what you suggest, I simply do not know. So, the next question was um, mathematics and um, God. Well, one of the main reasons from a scientific perspective why I believe in God is because mathematics works. You see, people often don't realize just what a spectacular thing it is that someone thinking in her head here can come up with a mathematical equation that describes the way the universe is working out there. But the really bright people, and Einstein was one up the road there in Princeton, he said the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. How does mathematics work? Now, you see, Another Nobel Prize winner, Eugene Wigdor, around the same time, in 1961, he wrote a paper, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Unreasonable, that it works, that it can help us, but it's only unreasonable if you're an atheist. He's assuming a worldview to make that comment. You see, as a Christian, I would say the reasonable effectiveness of mathematics, why? because the reason mathematics works is in the biblical view that the God who created the universe out there created the human mind in here and God being a rational intelligent God has made us in his own image as intelligent human beings and therefore science works and that to my mind is a hugely powerful reason for believing in God, because if you take the atheist view, I say to many of my colleagues, I say, what do you do science with? And they say with my, well, they they should say mind, but some of them don't believe in the mind. They say the brain, and I say, tell me about the brain. Oh, the brain, the human brain's the end product of a mindless, unguided process. I say, really, and you trust it. Tell me honestly, now I've tried this with many people, famous people, if you knew that your computer was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you use it? I've always had the answer no. I said, I see you have a problem. You see, the Christian biblical view makes tremendous sense of mathematics. Now, the final question was, how close are we to getting qualitative answers to divine action? Gosh. The concepts embedded in that very perceptive question are enormously difficult but important. What exactly is divine action and how can we measure it? There have been reams written about that. How can we measure it? Well, what I would want to say on the absolute practical level, can we measure certain aspects of divine action, I would want to say we can. Because you see, the central heart of the gospel of Jesus has to do not so much with the physics of the universe, but with our morality and behavior. And it is the fact, I've observed it many times, I meet someone, like at um, one of your great universities here, and I'd finished a lecture, And up stood this Chinese student in the balcony, and he shouted down at everybody, several thousand students, look at me. We all looked, of course. And I called up because he was talking to me. Why should we look at me? He was radiant. He said, six months ago, I was at Penn State University. I was at the end. I'd no hope. Life was in a mess and all this kind of thing. And you said something and I followed it up and I began to read scripture and I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Look at me. It was the most powerful argument any of those students had ever seen. And I've seen it again and again where broken relationships are healed through faith in Christ. Where there's food on the table instead of alcohol in the cupboard and narcotics hidden under the floorboards, people get transformed. And to my mind, from a practical point of view, that is the most powerful evidence of the divine action in our world today. Of course, I do believe that the various miracles that are reported in Scripture are very important aspects of divine action, so important, that the resurrection was preached by the early apostles as the evidence for the truth of Christianity. And I'd just like to say uh, two things in closing now. First of all, if you'd like to follow more of this, I've just written a little book called Can Science Explain Everything? And I've got a huge website, JohnLennox.org, with masses of this stuff on. But some of the evidences, including the personal stuff that I mentioned at the end, are in that book. So thank you very much for inviting me. Sorry, some of you had to stand, but I hope you felt it was worth it. Thank you.